Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network um, podcast, How to Be Wrong. I'm John Kegg, here with my co-host, John Traphagan. John, great to be here with you again. As always, it's a pleasure to be here in, uh, with my partner in wrongness. <laughs> now, I'm thrilled to introduce the Pulitzer Prize finalist, Chloe Cooper-Jones, to talk about her uh, Easy Beauty, a book about beauty, disability, philosophy, and how to think about well, being wrong. Chloe, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Chloe, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your writing just to get things going? Sure. Um, So I spent a lot of time in academia studying philosophy and also literary theory and teaching those subjects, and then used a lot of the things I was learning to do um, a variety of different types of freelance writing from culture writing to sports writing, um, writing about prison reform and social justice topics, um, and then an art, and then the sort of culmination of a lot of years of study and thinking led to this book, Easy Beauty, which is a mix of memoir, but also a sort of rumination on the nature of beauty and its role in our lives, as well as a lot of thinking about art and what its power um, to sort of transport us in its aesthetic um, properties, like what what effects those things can possibly have on on our lives and our conceptions of ourselves. Well, that's very interesting. It, our our podcast, as you know, is is about how to be wrong and about ideas of epistemic humility. And, and one of the things we kind of like to do is put our guests on the spot. And so I'd like to ask you if you could recount a time when you found yourself in error and, and what that taught you about yourself and about your world, your interactions with other people, um, basically whatever came out of that for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm wrong all the time. I think there's like one of the really interesting things about being wrong is there's like so many different ways to be wrong. Like there's so many varieties of of getting something wrong within, you know, what we might think of like as a, as a spectrum of right to wrongness. Like sometimes you're just so totally wrong about something, but I think like the most interesting times for me is when I'm wrong about something, but it's, it's more that I'm just not in control of my rightness about something. So this is like a recent example in which I don't think it's that I totally did something wrong or thought totally incorrectly, but I was out of control of the rightness of, of the moment or, or sort of the clarity that was needed to really make the right decision. And it just, I, I went to my son's school. I have an 11 year old son named Wolfgang and I went to his school for a like parents Thanksgiving day. And I think this day was really intense. I was walking through the hallways of his school and, and I think maybe kids were just really excited about their parents coming. And so I was just hearing the sort of like noise and clamor and screaming and crying and like all these very intense emotions. And my son is very calm and he's always been hyperverbal. So a lot of his emotions just come out in communication and that's allowed him to be like a very calm child. And so I was sitting in the classroom with him. He was really calm. He's really excited about me being there. And there was this other kid in his class who got upset about something 
started to cry, put his head on the desk, and then stayed there with his head on the desk for, I think, like a a full hour. We'll just call this person, this kid, Bob or something. Um, And so I was really looking at Bob and going, oh my God, what's wrong? You know, what's happened here? I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. He seems so sad. And, and all the other kids are having a party with their friends. And my son was really excited that I was there and he was having so much fun and he was eating and it's like this whole Thanksgiving feast. And I kept looking at, at this kid, Bob. And finally I said to Wolfgang, can you go over there and just find out what's going on and see if you can offer some comfort and, you know, kind of check in with him and care for him. And so Wolfgang goes over there and he's, you know, talking to this kid and really listening in a way that looks very empathetic to me. And he's sort of rubbing the kids back and talks to this kid for a really long time, like 30, 40 minutes. And then the party's over and we leave. And on the walk home, I'm saying to Wolfgang, wow, I'm just so proud of you. I'm so amazed by the depth of your empathy. You're so mature. You're so thoughtful. You you spent so much time comforting this other kid and, you know, you don't get upset this way and, and you know how to take care of it. Like I was just going on and on about what I saw as like this great mature act um, on behalf of, you know, my son for, for one of his classmates. And I was later talking to one of his teachers about this and saying, you know, wow, you know, isn't this great that Wolfgang will do? And she said, yeah, it's nice. Um, we appreciate it. But like he's a kid, that's not his job. And because he's so calm, the way that that manifests in a classroom is that he gets less attention and he doesn't speak up when he needs to speak up and express whatever emotion he's he's really having. And we like that he'll go and check in with people and be empathetic to his classmates, but like not at the expense of a childhood, basically. And it was such a powerful moment for me on so many levels. One, and this is what I mean about the sort of not exactly being wrong, but not being in control of my rightness. It's like, I don't think it was a wrong thing for him to check in and talk to this other kid. Like, I think that's great. And I think the fact that I encouraged him to do that has some real benefit. Um, But it also is this reminder that like, as a parent, you're doing this constantly sort of impossible thing of trying to instill grown up, mature, empathetic, adult sort of emotions or habits or behaviors in your children, while also really letting them be kids. um, And remembering that that they're, cir- they're, they're searching so profoundly for your approval. And if I make my approval about him sort of putting everybody else's feelings above his own enjoyment, like having fun at this party like everyone else, then that could instill in him this belief that possibly his own emotions or his own joy-seeking behavior is not as valuable as, as you know, caretaking. And it's like, that I want him to feel all, all these things. It's like it's like just getting the right balance of of influence is so hard. It's so impossible. Um, and that was a moment where I just felt like, again, I didn't do the wrong thing, but I did it with the wrong emphasis or with the wrong balance, or I was reinforcing too intensely one side of an equation when ideally I would have been enforcing or or um, emphasizing both sides of the equation, care and also joy and fun and, and, and his own sort of personal experience of this party. Hmm. So, 
Yeah. I, I think your, I mean, your comments um, is making me think quite a bit about your writing, which oftentimes has to do with misapprehension or um, a sort of misemphasis or a sort of missed uh, balance or a sort of imbalance um, about the way that we perceive the world or a particular subject. And I'm thinking a little bit about Easy Beauty. When it first came out, um, I read it twice and then it's going to come out again in April. And if I'm right, this book is about how to be wrong in a bunch of different ways, um, in many different senses, some of which I'd like you to take us through today. Um, if I understand it correctly, the book, the memoir, uh, reflection on beauty is an invitation for readers to experience what it's like for you to live in a society where there are certain norms and unspoken rules about what beauty is and what it means. Um, and for you to live in face of these norms, which suggest repeatedly that uh, you or a, a, a lot of people simply don't fit in. Um, so in short, I think, I mean, when I read it, it's a memoir about what it is to live as quote and unquote wrong or not adhering to the quote right way of looking um, and being in a very constrained world. Um, am I am I generally on target with this? And what was it like to write such a book? And what do you want people to get get out of it? Yeah, I think I think you are right. Um, I think also it's important. Yeah, like going back to the sort of like shades of of wrong, not being totally in control of your rightness or something. Like I think the book is really trying to relax these binaries ultimately between this idea of like living right or, or living wrong. I think, I think the book really starts out with this sense of what it is specifically for disability to um, be made to feel other in a society. So, and this is very true to the experience of disability that you can often feel like you're just living on the margins of a realer life. So one way of, of framing that binary is like right and wrong. Another way is just sort of this feeling as though there's a real life that able-bodied people get to live that almost everything in our society is sort of built up for, right? Like the size of chairs and um, the standard sizes of clothing that you would find in a clothing store or the way in which we tell stories and narratives, love stories, like all of these sorts of there's so many different things like physical objects in the world, narrative devices that are all sort of about this version of what a real life is. And most of those things don't make room for disability. And so there can be this feeling of, of just being on the margins of a realer um, existence that you can see, but you can't participate fully in, or you're not asked to participate fully in. I think that's really where the book begins but I think that the book sort of, hopefully, this is the feeling of, of, of it when you read it, is that it moves through that to sort of expand outward into a broader idea of just that sensation of like constantly feeling as though you're living in translation, that, that the experience of being a person in the world, a singular, you know, just any singular human um, contains a, a universe that is so hard to communicate, to 
translate, to be understood. And we're all sort of living in this sense of, of translation or mistranslation or miscommunication. And that is just the human experience. That's not in any way limited to disability or any single identity marker that you could name. We're all sort of impossibly living in this situation in which we know we're constantly being misunderstood. And some of us sometimes, quite often to our detriment, um, attempt to bridge these impossible gaps in feeling and experience and thought in order to live a life with others. Um, And that can be this unbelievably heartbreaking and also the most profoundly human thing that we can do. It's, it is in fact, the thing that makes us very precisely human is that we are constantly engaging in this act of translation, this leap of faith with other people. So I think the point of the book is when I'm thinking about otherness is to start out in a very specific place, my own experience of this as just one person being female, um, specifies that experience of otherness, being a mother specifies that experience of otherness, and being in the physical body that I'm in that deals with a lot of pain, that looks really different from other people, that gets read a specific way. I'm very short, and I have a disability that causes me to walk with a sort of side-to-side gait. So I'm often seen as childlike or precarious or in need of constant assistance um, that I'm not actually in need of. And so all of those things sort of clarify and specify my version of this very human universal problem, which is um, nobody can fully understand us. <laughs> and that's that's just what it is. Um, and yet we we are always engaged in this friction causing experience of trying desperately to connect, to communicate, to build community um, through, you know, translation. That's the um, there. There's so many things running through my mind right at the moment. Um, I, I want to um, step back just for a moment and just return briefly to your um, the uh, experience you had with your son in school. Uh, both of my kids attended uh, elementary school in the summers in Japan, and um, that would not have been the response of teachers there. Um, in fact they would, first of all, I can't imagine them ever saying that's not your job or not your child's job. Because in fact, one of the things about um, particularly elementary education in Japan is it's very focused on learning how to be a social person, how to interact with each other. So they encourage those kinds of activities among the children to help each other out rather than assuming that, you know, things focus on the self. It's more focused on the community. And one of the things that gets me, you know, got me to thinking was how much um, culture plays a role in the way that we define what others are, how they're defined, how they're put together. It's different from one uh, society to another and and how all of that plays out. Um, The other thing that I thought was, well, there's a lot that's really interesting, but um, you you made a comment about uh, people wanting to help you and not necessarily needing or wanting the help. And and we had another guest on uh, last year. Uh, Her name is Sherry Wells Jensen. She's um, a linguist and she's blind. And she often talks about, you know, things like going through an airport and having someone grab her arm 
and start walking her around as though she can't find her way around. She knows exactly how to get around an airport. And it's like really condescending and irritating and they won't let go. That's the other thing is it's like, you know, I think about it. Okay. Uh, how would I feel if someone just grabbed my arm and started walking me around an airport? I, I would not feel good about that. And so um, one of the things I'd like to, you know, explore is, that, you know, you, you've provided what I think is a first person account of living with um, disability. Um, but also it's a story about revealing to others how they are wrong about their aesthetic and moral assumptions and maybe um, also just their more basic practical assumptions about what other people need. There's that we tend to fill in the gap about what we think other people need without um, even asking in many cases. And so I'm curious, how do you, how did you approach this in a way that um, maybe doesn't alienate a reader or a student or an audience or, or, you know, maybe it's okay to alienate them as well a little bit, get them to be uncomfortable with the way they think about things. But I, you know, how do you approach talking to others Mm -hmm. about this? Well, yeah, I mean, I I think just to go back to your comment about, um, you know, the advice that these teachers gave my son or gave me, I think that they are encouraging community and I'm certainly encouraging community. Um, But I do think the question is always like, how do you actually become the best member of a community? And typically that's not to completely subjugate your own sense of self or your own autonomy, your own desires, but to see your sort of individuality in concert with others. And, and I think one thing that's interesting too about, about that comment and about also my perception about it is if I had a daughter, I wonder if they would have said the same thing. You know, it's like women are often put in positions of, of being caretakers. And so, you know, maybe if, if it had been a, you know, a little girl doing that, they would have been like, that's so great (laughs) and left it at that. So I think, I think your comment of like culture, age, gender, like all these things become, yeah, the prism through which our actions are filtered. And one of the the impossible things I think about just being a self, but then partnering that self with this idea of, of being a parent and, and trying to lead a, a second self um, through through the world. It's like that prism is just so, um, it, it, I guess the simplest way of saying it is it's in constant need of reflection. And I think when you're engaged in a situation that is in constant need of reflection and when your intentions are very good um, and you want them and you want the things to go right. And this is sort of transitioning to the second part of your question. Those are the moments when you're wrong, you can be the most offensive, right? Because you want to say, but I meant to how I want to do the right thing. So you're talking about this example of someone being led, you know, grabbed and led through the airport. My guess is and this is certainly my experience, is often that person <laughs> grabbing the arm of me or, or someone else or grabbing the handles of the wheelchair. Um, they're doing that strange grabbing limitation of autonomy with good intentions, right? Like their intentions are, I see a person in need and I'm going to go provide assistance. So my experience, and I know this is true for for a lot of people in the disability community, is when you try to redirect or ask people to reflect on that behavior, sometimes it can be um, really offensive to them. It can feel like you're attacking them 
or you're telling them that they're bad people because their intentions are often good. And that's a really tricky thing with disability is a lot of the prejudice, certainly not all, but a lot of the prejudice that that I experience just on a day-to-day basis, not systemically, but just on a day-to-day basis is prejudice that comes from, or limitations on my autonomy that comes from allegedly good good places, right? And I write about this throughout the book, just simple things that people don't understand about how my body works or the kind of help I need. Um, So for example, I I trip and fall in the book at one point. And one often um, response is for people to run over and kind of grab my arms. But because my legs are, and the nerve endings in my legs are underdeveloped, I actually really need my arms to pull myself up. So I can't stand up just sort of using my legs. My arms become really important balance points or or tools for balancing myself or going upstairs. So I just use my body in a way that's sort of counterintuitive to other people. So if you restrict the use of my arms by grabbing them and like trying to lug me up, you're you're actually making this thing much harder um, for me to do. And that's something people don't, don't understand. I also think there's... This sort of bizarre, um, or not bizarre, it's very human, uh, lack of imagination when it comes to what they perceive as struggle or, or or just difference. So I often get asked... I get on airplanes and then people, you know, quite often people go, well, do you need a wheelchair to get off the airplane? And I'll think, well, you saw me walk on, but now I can't get, you know, it's like, what's just happened here? Or it's like, you're, you know, talking about this person, like you, they figure out how to get into the airport. They probably know, they probably have a plan, you know, to get to their gate or what, like people don't usually typically show up in places with zero plan. I've often been on the subway with some groceries or a book bag or something, and I'll get to the stairs. And at the bottom of the stairs, people rush over to lug me up the stairs or, or to pull grocery bags out of my hands. And I just think like, well, you know, I got myself into this subway. I, I kind of figured out a way to get out of it. And that's something that I think most people who don't live in a body that signals um, immediate sort of signs of struggle or difficulty, like take for granted that they're, that people around them assume that they're able to complete the very normal daily tasks of their life. Whereas for me, I think it's always being questioned. Well, can she do this? Is she going to be able to do that? Is this going to be too difficult? And to me, it's like, well, these are just very normal things. I have a friend who um, wrote this incredible book that's coming out next year called The Country of the Blind. And it's about um, him losing his vision, but also talking about, about, um, blindness and in, in a lot of, in a really prismatic, brilliant way. And his name's Andrew Leland. And a lot of what he writes about is people's unimaginative questions about blindness. How do you eat? How do you walk? How do you put your clothes on? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's just, if you're born into a body, you figure out how to move it around the world. And it looks different to other people sometimes. But the gap that I, I think creates a lot of these well-intentioned but but ultimately sort of reductive and dehumanizing acts of, you know, quote-unquote help is just a pure lack of imagination or a pure lack of belief that the person that's standing in front of them, the disabled person standing in front of them, is, is equally as human as you are. And that 
that distance and that belief, I just, it comes up in so many circumstances on a daily um, basis for me. And it can be really arresting. It can be very painful. There are really good ways to, to offer assistance. And I think the simple difference is a belief in a person's agency and a willingness to really listen or think about what it is that they need. And when that kind of help is offered to me, I'm really grateful for it. So I, 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 I really love the concept of a lack of imagination. I, I certainly see that in many, many realms of our experience. But uh, I, I'm going to ask uh, maybe a, an odd question, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're being a little bit too generous. <laughs> um, and and I, I ask that because I, I think one of the characteristics I see as, as being a part of American culture is a, a sometimes almost a hyper focus on self and leading to a kind of selfishness that is is very American in some ways. And I wonder if if maybe also that lack of imagination is a product of of a tendency in our culture to be very centered on oneself rather than you know, ra- rather than asking, what do you need? It's, oh, you need this. I've decided what you need this. And is, would you say that is there a kind of selfishness there or would you object to that? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, no, I wouldn't necessarily object to it. I just think I would, I would yes and it, you know, like I think that there isn't one thing that, and not that you're indicating this at all, but I don't think there's one thing that creates these sorts of reactions. I think lack of imagination is one of them. I think selfishness is one of them. I think just like people are tired is one of them. You know, like people are busy. Um, it's it's a it's an incredible act of generosity to think critically about another person, let alone um, many people or strangers. And um, I think sometimes people are offering me a type of assistance that that ultimately is less about being selfish, but is more about being um, needing their mind to be pulled in a, in a lot of different directions. And I think for me, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to have a fault, I'd rather that fault be generosity than, than others, not, not a uncritical generosity by any, I don't think that does anybody any favors, but I'd rather try to think about, the sort of depth and complexity of the possibilities of why people behave the way that they behave and to give other people um, as much depth as, as I can and to try to think about them as critically as I can because that's primarily the thing that's been withheld from me. Um, and so one of the big sort of points that I get to in my book is it cannot possibly be a, it does start in this place, but it can't possibly end in this place of saying, here's how other people treat me. Right. Like that's not, I can't, that's not good art to just like talk at somebody. And and we learn this as educators as well. We lose students the moment we forget to speak with them um, and just begin to talk at them. And I don't want to lose my readers. I don't want to lose my students. I don't want to lose your, your listeners. So I think one thing that's really important, you know, just what's the simple difference between talking at someone and talking with someone. And I think the simple difference is having some skin in the game. So when I'm thinking about why people can act in such reductive ways to me, I think the best way for me to approach that type of critical thinking is to ask myself, why do I also do that? 
because I know I do it too, because I'm alive and I'm human and I'm tired and I'm busy and I'm selfish and, and I'm flawed and, and I have a lack of imagination just like any other person. So it's really, really crucial for me to think like, um, what's the whole tapestry of reasons uh, that we behave in the way that we behave and to include myself fully um, as a participant in that behavior. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, It's quite beautiful, actually, I think. I mean, um, when I read Easy Beauty, um, the transition between um, the, you said in the early stages, what it's about is sort of like how you're being treated versus the long-term trajectory of the book is really to show that your case is... uh, exemplifies a much deeper and more universal human difficulty, namely the problem of inner subjectivity or the problem of understanding each other or fully understanding or thinking we understand each other. And it made me think about this essay um, that William James writes at the end of the 19th century called On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings, where he says that we have an innate self-centeredness that makes it impossible for us to understand uh, others' lives, inner lives, as vibrantly as we understand our own. And it seems like that's right in a certain sense, but it seems like what you're trying to do is actually overcome that divide in particular ways, but also understand and acknowledge certain limitations on understanding another person in their own uniqueness or subjectivity. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because I want to understand you, but, but, but understanding you might involve me acknowledging that I don't in other words. And so could you say something or, you know, could you say a little something about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the great sort of difficulties of being, um, you know, a person with the, with this brain, um, that we have is that there are all these things that are sort of machine-like, um, about our brain that is so helpful and helps us get around the world or is sort of, you know, maybe evolution of survival instincts, but yet we also simultaneously have these critical faculties that allow us if we're willing to try and put the energy into it, um, to, if not override aspects of our um, of our cognitive functions, be more aware of them or have a better dialogue with them. And I think the way that I see this functioning often with disability is, is that we, we do have, and maybe this is part of what you're talking about, this innate selfishness, or at least is like, um, at least r- related to it, is that we do have just this need to get up in the morning and, and do the work we need to do and to take care of our ourselves and our very localized community. And in order to do that, we do necessarily have to shut the world out and shut the pain of the world out. I mean, I woke up this morning to, you know, look at the New York Times headlines as I always do. And and if I really ruminate on some of the horrors that I will find there, I would never have gotten on this podcast and I would never talk to you and I would not have gotten my son off to school. And there's so many things I I wouldn't have done. So in order to move forward, 
we of course have to limit our empathy and our compassion, our ability to allow other people's pain and suffering or difference even um, like penetrate uh, into us. And I think one thing about this that's very specific to disability is that um, disability is an identity that if we're all lucky and we get to live a long life, we are all going to encounter it. Um, So it is not, it's not an identity that is actually other to anybody. It is the essential, um, like nature of having a body that it is constantly and a mind is that it's constantly in flux, it's changing. And as we age, it's changing in ways that can increase pain and limit mobility um, and other kinds of ability. And that happens in our minds as well. So we're all, every single living person is on a continuum of a relationship to disability. But I also think that that continuum is sometimes a really scary thing to look directly at because that continuum is, is often related to decline or death um, or the, the sort of lack of, of being able to engage in certain things that you can engage in now. I remember my father just talking about one of the saddest moments of his life being the moment where he walked onto the basketball pickup court and realized he was the oldest person on the court and couldn't like, no, the 20 year olds didn't want to play basketball with him. And this like sent him into this, this sort of intense spiral that as a child, I didn't really understand why this was like such a devastating occurrence, but now at, at almost 40, I'm like, oh, I get, you know, I get it. It's like, you want to be the young, uh, powerful person on the basketball court and one day time sort of changes that for you. Um, and I think that those things are really hard to look at. And if we let all those things in, they could possibly stall out um, the part of our brain that's going to like get our kids off to school and and go to the grocery store and do laundry. So sometimes I think when people encounter me and they see physical difficulty or they see me experiencing pain, there's some part of their own fears about their own changing bodies, minds, or place in society, relevance in society or attractiveness or desirability or just like the, that open road of possibility that's so romantic in our youth and necessarily has to change as we get older. Like, I think a lot of people have this sort of swirling, um, you know, set of existential fears that, that then I embody a little bit for them, or someone in a wheelchair embodies, or someone aging embodies for them. And there can be, I think, a very natural um, disgust and repulsion reaction to that. Now, does that make my life easier? No, it doesn't. It's it's often quite painful for me to receive that disgust or repulsion reaction. And I do actually think that that's one of the most common ways that people interact with me is just immediate sort of uncritical discomfort in my presence. So those things are painful for me as an individual to take in, but I love people and part of loving people is trying to think more broadly about them and why they do the things that they do. And so it's like, if I'm really going to be a good thinker and a more generous thinker that then could write something that would be worthy of anyone else, 
I have to move beyond the point of being like, this hurts and sucks for me into a bigger point, which could be like, you know, maybe we can't overcome these disgust reactions, but if we can think about them critically or think about our own relationship to disability critically, we could be in a better dialogue with that part of human nature, that innate selfishness that that operates quite powerfully to protect us. And in that protection, isolates us from other people and our own future experiences. I'll just I'll just do a really quick uh, add on to that because um, what you're saying is so powerful. I think. Um, I mean, folks like James say that we have an innate self centeredness, right? But at the beginning of that essay, it's about really the difference in class between James who, and a person he's encountering in um, rural Appalachia and uh, James acknowledging that he thought that this person that he's seeing out on the road in rural Appalachia, a very different socioeconomic class, did not have an appropriate life. And it was James's acknowledgement of that, which sometimes gets lost because we might have an innate self-centeredness, but it's also accentuated by class differences or bodily differences, or as you say, a sort of denial of death, Ernst Becker sort of idea, like like that we're scared about what we might become or what we are becoming or what um, sort of is in the shadows of our lives. And the disgust that we feel and the sort of othering that occurs is a function of that fear oftentimes. And I thought what you said is really, really interesting and powerful, hopefully for our listeners too. John, John, did I cut you off? I'm sorry. No, not not at all. And I was actually thinking uh, some similar thoughts as as Chloe was talking, and also it kind of brought back my own thinking about uh, doing my my dissertation research in Japan, which was a study of uh, how people conceptualize senile dementia. And um, one of the things that really did strike me at the time, and his as I've gotten older, I've thought more and more about is the fact that you know, I was in my 30s when I was doing that research. I could sort of intellectually grasp what people were telling me, but I couldn't experience it. Um, I couldn't experience the feeling of being old. Um, it, it hit me one day when I was at a meeting uh, where uh, government officials were talking about some services for uh, older folks. And uh, in Japan, when you have meetings like that, often everyone's sitting on the floor. And so when the meeting ended, um, everyone stood up and all you heard was, you know, snap, pop, crack as all these knees were struggling and, and everyone started laughing. And but I thought about it, you know, I'm in my 30s and my knees now they do, but that then they didn't do that. And it really hit me how difficult it was for me to truly understand you know, here I am, the anthropologist, trying to understand what these people experience, but I can't embody it at that point. And and of course, now later in life, I'm understanding it more. Uh, also, seeing my my own father struggle with memory loss and this sort of thing, I'm beginning to understand the onset of dementia in a different way from the way I understood it as a researcher. Um, and so, you know, it's been kind of an ongoing process as I've, I've reflected on this. Um, I, I would I would like to turn to a, a little bit of a different question. Um, 
Your book is entitled Easy Beauty, um, and uh, I, I, beauty doesn't seem easy to me, um, and I don't know exactly what that means. And so I, I'd kind of like to ask you if you could talk a little bit about what that means for you um, and, um, you know, kind of what beauty means for you. Um, what, what is, how would you kind of define that? Well, yeah, I mean, the book turns over a lot of ideas about beauty. And I think one one major distinction among many that we could make is that the beauty that the book takes as its subject is less um, the kind of beauty we think about as like physical beauty or the kind of beauty of a model on a magazine or something. I'm, I'm less interested in that and how like society sort of shapes that conception. And I'm more interested in the kind of beauty that we would often associate with uh, you know, aesthetic response, um, a, a physiological response. So the kind of beauty that sort of feels like it, it arrives in our body first and, and in our minds, maybe second, like the kind of beauty of, of nature, um, when we're moving through, I don't know, an incredible, you know, wood on a hike or something, or looking at the Grand Canyon or sunset, uh, the kind of beauty that comes from serious contemplation of art in all the ways that we might define that, the kind of beauty of um, that might come from the simplicity of a well-wrought mathematical theorem or a wonderful piece of philosophy that excites the mind um, in a way that feels physical, or a beautiful sentence from from a great poet. And a lot of the things that I'm I'm looking at are how different thinkers, philosophers, writers, poets have thought about that type of beauty and its power in our lives to shape our consciousness and to change us. So a lot of the book is, and we've been talking about this the whole time, is how do I get outside of myself? Like, how do I get outside of my own narratives or the own really, you know, limited, self-centered, or, or Iris Murdoch calls it the palace of self-regard that does necessarily absolutely um, shape the way that I I exist and and communicate and move through the world and one thing Murdoch identifies is is possibly this this way in which art and external beauty can uh, you know she calls this unselfing she has this great example of looking at a bird she's sort of feeling wrapped up in her own uh, sort of anxiety about one or another thing, her own stature in the world or what she's working on. And then she looks out a window and sees a kestrel, the bird. And suddenly all that exists is this kestrel. And it just gives her a moment in appreciation of the beauty of this bird, gives her a moment to step outside of this palace of self-regard and engage in the external world. And she really believed, and she's not the only philosopher to, to write about this, um, that that kind of experience and interaction and true engagement with beauty can allow us a reprieve from our own ego. And then when we return to ourselves, we do so a little bit wider, a little bit more expanded. And the writer Elaine Scarry um, uses some of these ideas from Iris Murdoch in her book um, on beauty and being just. And I talk a lot about about her um, in one of the chapters of the book. And one thing she talks about, which I feel like is so important to everything we've been talking about um, together today, is the sensation of recognizing, finding, a, finding yourself in a moment 
when you realize that you have either overcredited something as having beauty or she says more problematically undercrediting something as having beauty and that thing now reveals itself as being more complex so she gives this example of looking at palm trees and thinking that palm trees are really ugly and horrible and cheesy and dumb and why does anybody want a palm tree around and then she's on this trip and she looks at a palm tree and there's a owl that's interlaced its um, feathers in the fronds of the palm tree and she looks at it and suddenly she realizes through the particularity of this one moment, this one palm tree, the owl, all of this, that she's been undercrediting the beauty of these palm trees. <laughs> and like, and what a what a terrifying moment that is for her to realize that. And then she says, Well, what else? What else have I not been willing willing to give my time, my patience, or my critical recognition to? How many other things have I undercredited? So the title Easy Beauty just comes from sort of a also a version of these these ideas um, that are all, I think, in a in a conversation with each other from the philosopher Bernard Bosenket, who just makes a distinction between easy beauty and difficult beauty. Easy beauty, he just simply says, is the kind of beauty that arrives to our senses pretty seamlessly immediately. So a rose or a simple spatial rhythm, he says, looking at a mountain range just something you see and perceive immediately as, as being beautiful. Then he says there's difficult beauty, which is the kind of beauty that takes time, patience, um, an embrace of complexity, an embrace of subtlety, an ability to sit with the resistance that a difficult piece of art or, or experience might pose to us and give it enough time, patience, thought, and then suddenly this magical thing happens where its beauty is revealed. So I think that's really tied to this idea of undercrediting and having a moment of recognizing that you've undercredited something's beauty. So in the book, I think I really, I go back and forth between these two ideas. And I think that one of the real revelations of the book for me is that I, I tend to put an unfair emphasis on the value of difficult beauty because difficult beauty does a better job of explaining my beauty in the world that it's just like going to take time and thought and only smart people will get it or something. Um, and then that problematically um, causes me to devalue things that come easily to me as beautiful. And most specifically, the sort of easy, happy, simple, beautiful experiences with my son, with my husband, um, with just being present uh, in, in the world. And those things don't hold as much value for me because I don't have to fight tooth and nail for them. They're just these incredible gifts of my everyday life. And so another sort of tilt and balance of the book is it starts off really looking at, at really complicated sources of beauty, Bernini sculptures and operas, and, um, and then eventually ends, the book ends in a moment of just walking home uh, in Brooklyn with my son and then like making making a Tuesday night dinner with my family, but learning how to write about those things and think about them with as much value as as I do the Berninis in the beginning of the book. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your work in in journalism and reporting. Um, what sort of stories do you tend to be drawn to, and why? Um, 
they often seem to deal with kind of questions of wrong wrongdoing and and maybe more subtly with misapprehensions of our legal system and our culture. So could you tell us what what the most maybe moving story apart from your own um, that you've encountered is and uh, maybe what it taught you about being wrong and being fallible and and even maybe about this concept of beauty that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean there's so many different examples. I think, you know, generally I'm drawn to stories um in journalism where there's just sort of a, a, a situation um, where it seems that people or my own perception of a situation um, is not penetrating very deeply and, and how, how and why that happens. So one sort of simple example is I wrote about tennis for a year just simply because I was watching tennis with someone who knew a lot about tennis. I knew nothing about tennis and all I could literally perceive was like a ball going over a net. And I was like, this is so dumb and boring. I don't know why anybody would ever like watch this sport, let alone millions of people. But, but sitting next to my friend and seeing his perception um, extend so much further into the game and he could see all these subtleties and new, and I, I was just like amazed by that difference. And I thought, well, what do I, what's blocking me from seeing what he sees? And that simple question, I think, what's blocking me or what's blocking us from seeing what other people can see so clearly, like those are kind of always at the heart of what I write. So I wrote about tennis because I wanted to undo those barriers to see as far as he could see. I think a higher stakes example is um, this piece that I wrote about a man named Ramsey Orta, who filmed the video that that most of us have seen um, of the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island uh, at the hands of the NYPD and the officer Daniel Pantaleo. So the video that a lot of us have seen um, where you hear Eric Garner say, I can't breathe uh, over and over and over again, that's a video that when it first came out, we're in a, I'm talking about this in a very different sort of cultural landscape, but when that video first came out, there were so many ways in which people were trying to explain away what was very clearly a murder um, and a man begging for his life. So there were all these dialogues around like, well, he, you know, Eric Garner was overweight and he was, you know, he was being arrested and he was resisting, you know, and all these conversations seemed to ignore what also could be like very plainly seen, um, like just right in front of our eyes. So the question in that piece was, Again, like why why are people not believing what they're seeing? What are all the systems or the needs, psychological beliefs or sort of histories? And racism is an obvious part of that answer, but it's it's certainly not the whole answer. There's so many other answers that work in in sort of communion to explain away um, what we're seeing right in front of us. So that piece really explored that. I think in terms of just being wrong, um, I mean, that piece taught me quite a bit. And I learned so much about the kinds of narratives that that we rely on to function. I think just one like tiny concrete example, though, is from this profile I did of a, um, a tennis player, Juan Martin Del Potro. And I had this assumption that when I interviewed athletes, that they were going to see me as <clears throat> sort of connected to what you were talking about before, like this embodiment of their worst fears, because they make their money on their physical power. So being around me would be um, kind of being confronted with with inability, a kind of inability that would 
end their careers completely. And I did experience that on the tennis tour. There were some athletes that felt, I think, really unbelievably uncomfortable around me or said and did some some pretty cruel things. But one Martin Del Potro, who's like 6'7 and, and very different from me in every possible physical way, he's sort of known, he's retired now, but he's known on the tour as having all these chronic injuries. So he lives his whole life in like constant pain management. And as do I. And so there was this sort of miraculous, bizarre thing that happened when we were together, which was like our perspectives kind of fit like a key in a lock. And we were kind of moving around the tennis tour in like the exact same sort of way and like evaluating the distance we had to walk or whether or not we had stairs or like what kinds of things were going to like create a, a, you know, just a drain on our energy or increase our pain. And it was such a bizarre experience to me to feel like I was seeing the world in such a similar way to this person who could not be more different from me. And that, I think that experience really unlocked a lot for me in terms of thinking about how all the different ways I can bridge, um, yeah, just like bridge Mike's, my, this feeling of being alive in the world and that I'm more connected than not. Um, so that, I think that piece just really shaped, shaped my thinking in really powerful ways. This has been, I mean, the, the time has just passed really quickly. Um, so I want to make sure that we, um, talk about everything that you'd like to talk about and whether you have any questions for us, it's been a lovely conversation. I mean, I, I have a million questions for, for you, and maybe I talk too much um, or too long, and I apologize. But I'm just curious, you know, I love this topic, um, How to Be Wrong. It's like my favorite topic. I love that you are doing this. I wonder what what things have surprised you both the most in giving this topic um, as much time as you have, uh, just, you know, talking to so many people and really sitting with this idea for so long. Have there been sort of unique surprises for you in, in this process. I, I find myself every week, John, John was really spearheaded this and drove it forward. So I'll let him go on at length about this, but I will say very shortly that um, as I've become more involved in the podcast, I want to do more and more and more of these conversations primarily because I always leave them feeling like, um, I'm, I like you are, I'm, I'm wrong. So you, you started by saying I am wrong so often <laughs> Yeah, and, and it makes me feel like we have, or I have a companion in misery. Uh, like it, it's, it's, it feels like I'm not alone, completely alone in my fallibility. And I think that, um, I, the responses that we've gotten from listeners have been along those lines. In other words, like, I'm really glad that I'm not alone and that these incredibly talented people who are, have been generous enough with their time to come and speak with us um, also find themselves as completely wrong a lot of the time. And part of life is to try to figure out how to um, work your way through uh, fallibility. Um, and so that's my, I guess, medium sized answer. John, do you, do you have a thought? Well, uh, I, there, there are many different things that I think have, have come to mind. I actually was very much resonating with the beginning of our conversation today because I think um, 
raising children is just an exercise in being wrong. Um, and particularly when they become teenagers, cause they keep telling you you're wrong. Um, and so, um, I think, um, for me, what, what has been so, I think, important in, in what we've done so far with this and what we've learned is, um, really trying to get out this idea that first of all, it's okay to be wrong. And it's what we do with that, that matters. And, and I think, um, one of my hopes at least is, is that more people listen to this and think about these kinds of topics. Uh, they will do what you described is, you know, think more critically about their interactions with other people. And then also in terms of their mistakes and in those interactions, uh, my own opinion is that this is the failure to do this is at the core of a lot of our problems in American society right now. Um, there is just a stunning lack of humility and a lack of willingness to open one's ears and listen to other people's perspectives and try to make sense out of them. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but we do need to understand them. And um, I, I think it's killing our society right now. And so uh, this was one of the ideas when we started this that I wanted to see if, if you know, John and I could do something that might, you know, at least in a small way, contribute to pushing against that um, and, and getting people to talk about openly about things they got wrong, how they think about being wrong, how they experience that. Um, I think today it's been wonderful to bring in this question of, of beauty and, and thinking about um, how our concepts of beauty are, are, first of all, very cultural and also how much they shape the way that we interact with other people, whether we are aware of it or not. I think this is a really powerful um, observation that I, I'm really glad to add to what we've been uh, doing. But um, but for me, those are really the things that kind of have motivated my interest in this. Yeah, that's so great. I mean, I love I love this as a topic. I totally agree with everything um, that you said. And I think John Kagan and I have talked about this before, just sort of, you know, as writers, it's like one of your, one of the best skill sets that you could possibly have is an ability to make friends with failure or make friends yeah. with being wrong. Um, and, and a willingness to sort of always be a student to something, um, in, in all the best ways that a student can be conceptualized, just as, um, eager to, to acquire knowledge through trial and error and being wrong and, and expanding themselves in that way. And, and I think, yeah, certainly um, the best writing comes from that place, the best thought, critical thought, uh, and maybe the best way to engage um, with others comes from that humility or uh, that willingness to, to see wrongness as a friend, like as a helpful guide in a way. So I just really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this and to, include me in it. And I really loved talking to you both today. It's really, it's really been our pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Um, and, um, and thank you for your time and it's been a great one. So, yes, thank you very much. And please give your dog a pat on the head for me. I love dogs. <laughs> she's, so. been, she's been pretty patient. <laughs> yeah, she's doing great. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.